Today we wrap up the Irresistible series. And we started this series on Easter Sunday, and it was all framed around two questions. One, how could a movement so irresistible in the first century, talking about the church, how could a movement so irresistible then become so easily resistible in the 21st century? And two, is it possible for us to reclaim whatever that was so that we can experience the same spirit-infused energy and growth today? That led us to three topics, and we've basically spent two weeks on each topic. First, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus was the event that changed everything for the early church and the early disciples. The resurrection motivated and emboldened a group of scared and nervous and confused disciples to become fearless messengers of the good news. It inspired every sermon in the book of Acts. It informed every New Testament letter. It uh, became the linchpin for the entire Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christian faith. Second, we spent two weeks talking about the new covenant. It was established by Jesus uh, through his death upon the cross. He talks about it in Luke chapter twenty-two, twenty, And the new covenant rendered the old covenant obsolete because it fulfilled and completed the old covenant. The Bible is equally inspired, but it's not equally binding or equally applicable. So there's a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. We need to understand whether we're talking about old covenant laws or new covenant laws when we're talking about things that we need to be obedient to. As Christians, we are people of the new covenant. And then we spent the last two weeks talking about the new command. Jesus taught us to love each other in the way that he loved us. This is the supreme command of scripture. It's the royal law. It's the summary of every book in the Bible, the summary of every command. Every command is fulfilled and expressed through the command to love your neighbor as yourself. It is the only thing that counts. Everything we do as a church should be informed and inspired by Jesus' command to love others in the way that he loved us. This is exceedingly clear and simple, but it's also extremely difficult and demanding to apply, which is why we need Jesus and it's why we need the Spirit's help. But the question then becomes, after taking all of that, you've sat through this series for six weeks, and you've heard all of these different pieces kind of talked about at different times. What does that have to do with being irresistible? You know, the first week of the series, my dad called, and we were just talking about some other stuff, and he said, where are you going with all this? You know, in other words, like, what, what's the end result? How does all of this tie together? What are you saying here? Well, it's real simple. Here's where we've been trying to go. If we want to become irresistible again, if we want to reclaim the new that Jesus unleashed on the world, then we should be talking more about the resurrection of Jesus. And we should be talking more about the promises of the new covenant. And we should be more talking more about the teaching of Jesus that emphasized the new command to love other people in the way that he loved us. Basically, what we need to do more of is we need to focus more on Jesus than all the other stuff that the church is typically known for. I mentioned that a few Sundays ago, and I made a list again this week. I mean, how much time do we spend in the church in pointless debates and theological controversies? How much time do we spend arguing over politics 
or fighting the culture wars or debating worship styles or dissecting the, the finer ports of doctrine or policing the moralities of others with a book, chapter, verse legalism or battling religions and atheism and agnosticism and other isms or advocating for the latest conspiracy theory on social media about the one world government and the mark of the beast. You know, can we just focus on Jesus and his resurrection? Can we just make that our focus as a church? Can we just focus on the promises of a better life that Jesus offers us and his teaching to love others? In other words, can we just keep calm and love others? You remember that, that phrase on the t-shirts and the memes and all that, you know, keep calm and carry on. Can we just keep calm and love others? Can you imagine what would happen in the church if we were able to do that? Can you imagine what would happen if we lifted Jesus up higher than all of our disagreements and opinions? And if we made love the primary ethic of the New Testament church? Here's why that's so important. All right, well, number one, Jesus commanded it. All right, so that's, that's one reason it's important. But the other reason is a little bit more practical, and it's we're losing a generation. Again, on Easter, I talked about the rise of the nuns. And I was talking about the increasing number of people who mark none of the above when asked to give their religious affiliation. It's growing every year, and it's largely a generational phenomenon. And I could share the statistics with you. I could put the charts on the screen and show you kind of what all the research reveals. But here's all you need to know. It's one sentence, and it's a direct quote from the Pew Research Study. It simply says this, Millennials are walking away from the faith they grew up in in record numbers. Now, you don't need that quote to know that. And you don't need to see statistics to know that. Because my guess is uh, you're related to a nun or two. Or are you, you know, you certainly known one or two in your life. Maybe you drove them to church camp when they were little, or maybe you gave them their first Bible, or maybe you were there at their baptism, or, or maybe you're their parents. Maybe you know their parents and you know the, you know the discouragement and the disappointment that you've dealt with because you're just worried about your kids because you raised them in a, in, a, in a faith that they've chosen to walk away from for one reason or another. And it's why this quote from Andy Stanley is so spot on. And it reminds me of something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Stanley says, if we're going to reach the unchurched, underchurched, dechurched, and post-churched folks with the new covenant, new command message of Jesus in a culture that's trending post-Christian, we must rethink our approach. The way Paul said it in 1 Corinthians was, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. And guys, I, I believe the gospel is at stake. I believe if we're going to reach a post-Christian society, then we're going to have to rethink our approach. We can't keep doing things in the same way and saying and teaching things in the same way, expecting different results. We've got to rethink our approach. As the society has become less and less Christian, the church has just kind of barreled on saying it in the same way we've always been saying it. You know, if the Bible says it, then that settles it. Well, for a lot of people, that doesn't settle it anymore. The authority of the Bible. Go into the authority of the Bible. And I believe the Bible is an authoritative book. 
But leaning on the authority of the Bible as the sole basis of our faith doesn't cut it for a post-Christian society. And as the Christian, uh, the societies become less and less Christian, the church responded with moving lights and fog machines. You know, we tried to make church more relevant. We tried to make it more attractive. We tried to make it more interesting. You know, if we just make church more interesting, then they'll come back. But they're not interested. And I'm all for making church better. And I'm all for making church interesting. I don't think church should be irrelevant or boring. It absolutely should be interesting. But I also know that that's not the answer to reaching people with the good news, especially in the society that we're dealing with right now. We must think about a new approach. And really, it's not that new. (laughs) I mean, it's something that Jesus has talked about since the beginning. And it's just that we confused and complicated it. Somewhere along the way, those eternal truths got lost in the shuffle. And we need to reclaim that message if we're going to reclaim future generations for Jesus. There's a great analogy in the book that kind of helps make sense of this. And I, I want to share it with you to see if it helps make, you know, kind of get your mind around it. It's called Reaching the Unequestrians. Now, I'll read you just a bit of what Stanley wrote and apply it. He says, out where I live, there are dozens of stables and riding rings, covered, uncovered, high-end, low-end, there are signs everywhere advertising riding lessons, claiming to have the most qualified, experienced trainers and the finest facilities. But I've never once turned down one of those gravel driveways to check out a riding ring or to interview a trainer. Why? We're unhorsed. (laughs) Nobody in our family rides horses. We're not non-horse riders because we can't find a clean stable or a qualified trainer. We're not unequestrian because we can't afford to rent or purchase a horse. We don't lack interest because we don't know what a horse is. It's quite the opposite. We know enough about horses to know that we're not horse people. It's not what we do. If the finest stable with the most qualified trainers in America moved into our areas, we still wouldn't go. Now, when I read that analogy, I'm like, oh, that, that's perfect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and kind of repackage it and tell it from my perspective. Like, we're not horse people and talk about what that means to drive by all these barns in our area and not be interested in what's going on in those at all. But here was the problem I ran into. My family, we are horse people. And I'm not speaking metaphorically here. I am speaking literally here. It's not that we're unhorsed. We're post-horse people. Listen, my granddad was a walking horse trainer. He had this huge barn out the back of his house. My Aunt Jane ended up living in it when I was growing up. We'd go play in that barn all the time. We were around walking horses all the time. The walking horse show in Hornwald was named after my granddaddy. We had front row seats. I'd sit with my grandmother and we'd watch those big horses go by. We worked it every year. We had, you know, our own box at the Shelbyville Grand Celebration, the Walking Horse Celebration. We would go every year. We were horse people. And some of us still are. My dad still owns horses. My brother still owns horses. He rides a lot. But my sister and I, we're not horse people anymore. We don't ride. We don't own horses. We don't keep up with what's going on 
in the horse world. We don't have any idea who the best trainers are or who has the best stables. It's something we never talk about or even think about. And you see the analogy, right? The reason post-church people find today's church perfectly resistible is they're not church people. They used to be church people. Their family used to be really big in the church. And maybe their grandmother, you know, still is. Maybe their brother still is. Some of the family are, you know, still very active in church. But it's not something they do anymore. It's not something they talk about or even think about anymore. They don't know which church is doing what. They don't know what kind of children's ministry that church is using as their curriculum. They don't know when the service times are. They don't know what preacher you should be listening to or what worship songs are popular right now. They could be surrounded by the world's best churches and never even think about attending one because it's simply something they don't do anymore. Maybe the legalism got to them, or maybe they were treated in an unloving way by Christian people, or you know, maybe they grew tired of the unloving rhetoric, or maybe they just couldn't align it with you know, their, whatever they had studied. Or I, I don't know. There's all kinds of reasons that people have walked away from the church. But that's why what we're talking about in this series and what we've been talking about is so important. And this is how it all ties together. Listen, I'm going to paraphrase here. In our post-Christian culture, making better churches or more relevant churches or more doctrinally sound churches or more theologically educated churches is not the answer. The answer is a return to the resurrection-centered, new covenant, love-one-another version of the faith that we've been unpacking in this series. The version of the faith that got the whole church thing started in the first place. Unchurched people may not be interested in church, but they certainly want to be treated well and loved, especially when things aren't going well in their life. And post-Christians could care less about my new sermon series or the latest book that's hit the Christian bookshelves, but they still are interested in matters of faith and spirituality. And, and this is the big thing, they still like Jesus. They still find his life and teachings inspiring, especially his instruction to love other people. So here's a novel concept. (laughs) What if we made church all about him? What if we made Jesus the primary emphasis of everything we say and do as a body of believers? What if we made his command to love others more important than all of our preferences and opinions and traditions and creeds? What if we made our faith more about a person and who he taught us to be and what he taught us to be than we did about a book? What if we made it more about love than the law? I've got some ideas about how we can do that. And we'll be talking about that, I'm sure, moving forward. Maybe you can talk about some of that in your groups this afternoon or later this week if your groups are meeting. But for now, I simply want to leave you with a challenge. Two passages have been on my heart as I've thought about how to conclude this series. Both of them were written by the Apostle Paul, and you know his background. Paul was a Jewish believer so committed to the Old Covenant and the Law of Moses that he was persecuting Christians. 
He was a legalist. He was self-righteous. He was prideful. He was arrogant. He was selfish until he met the resurrected Jesus and became transformed by his love. And then this former legalist, used to go by Saul, now named Paul, started writing things like this. And these are the passages that I'll leave us with as we wrap up this series. The first one's in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. The other passage is from the 13th chapter of Corinthians. You're very familiar with it. Paul didn't write it for a wedding. He wrote it for a church. And yet I'll show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong, or a clanging symbol. If I have a gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then I shall be known fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. That's it. That's the summary. That's how this all ties together. That's where all of this is going. Jesus, the resurrection, a righteousness that comes not through obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ. 
and a maturity that comes only through taking seriously the command of Jesus to love other people. If we want to become irresistible again, then we would do well to adopt these same things. A whole generation of, well, we're just not church people anymore. Depends on.